welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm in the studio today with a longtime friend and former Fort Lewis College student, longtime Master Plan Ministries staff person that, if you didn't know, is the ministry that I'm involved with as well. And Kyle is here in the studio today. He leads our ministry up in Grand Junction. Howdy, Nate. Hey, it's great having you on the show. And Kyle has an appreciation for apologetics, just like I do, and he does a lot of the same stuff that we do here back in Grand Junction with his students. It's just that CMU is a much bigger university, and their ministry there is a much larger ministry, so it's neat to have him back in Little Durango. It's great to be here, Nate. So why don't you tell us, Kyle, a little bit about how you first came to Fort Lewis College and what your life was like when you first showed up on campus. Well, I originally grew up in Steamboat Springs. Um, I'm not a native to Colorado, but uh, pretty close. I've spent all except for about three or four years in Colorado. And uh, this is the school I chose. I was planning on going into engineering, and this was the best stepping stone to doing that. But when I got here, well, I really didn't know a lot of what I believed or why I believed it. And so I just kind of functioned. I knew where I was going. I knew how to get there as a geological engineer, and so that's what I pushed on for. But in my first year, I kind of discovered that there was more to life than what I thought. One of the main things that I observed was everything in life failed. I hadn't seen that before. I hadn't really thought about it. But over the course of my first year, I saw my grades go from National Honor Society with AP classes Too uh, cumulative in my freshman year, nothing to be proud of, a 1.67, not exactly National Honor Society quality. So I was failing, Um, relationships were failing, I saw friends go through uh, business disasters, career disasters, finances failed, everything failed. So right here in, uh, well, what we used to call the new apartments back in the 80s, I lived up in there at the time. And I realized, man, what am I going to do here? So I started kind of contemplating, okay, if I decide to finish life here, uh, it's not going to fail. And about that time, I ran into some of these students. What I saw in these students, my fellow peers, was that God, Jesus Christ specifically, was real in their lives. Uh, had an active part in every part of their lives, from classes to relationships to fulfillment in their life. And I saw something in their life I'd never seen before. So I started asking more questions, and they pointed me to the truth in the Bible that uh, religion leaves us empty, but a relationship with Jesus Christ is very fulfilling, and that is actually the source of real life. And so at 2 a.m. in April of 1984... Uh, Yes, that that year did exist uh, for some of you. (laughs) It's more than just a theory. Um, I crawled out of bed and I said, God, if you are real, I want you to show yourself to me in a very real way. I didn't expect him to show up tangibly, physically, but at that point, he definitely changed my life. And I uh, woke up the next morning with purpose and direction. I knew that there was something to live for. And I knew that God really was real, not just a religion of doing activities and do's and don'ts. Wow. Great story. And what's greatest about it is it's not just a story. I know so many people, myself included, have 
experience this life-changing interaction and impact with Jesus Christ, where he truly takes over our lives and makes us the kind of person he wants us to be, saving us from everything that you just described. So, Kyle, how does the Bible fit into your experience? Where did you come to appreciate the Bible? Well, I started uh, my my education career as a geological engineer. Uh, my other real love was biology. There were just no jobs in that at the time. So I really liked to have things that I could verify. Um, I didn't want just some hocus-pocus, fanciful myth. And so... As I started researching things, um, that is where I started looking at, okay, if this Bible stuff is real, then it needs to be paid attention to. But how am I going to be able to tell if it is real? So that's about when I started doing some studies, some research on what is this stuff? Can I really trust the Bible? And that brought you to some amazing conclusions. And these aren't just Kyle's <laughs> musings. No. These are reproducible facts. And many people have described the reliability of the Bible. But I thought it would be interesting this morning, while Kyle is here in town, to ask him about what he's discovered over the years as far as the trustworthiness of the Bible is concerned. So, Kyle, the first question I have for you is, why would you trust the Bible in the first place? Well, one of the first evidences is where did it come from? How was it put together? You know, isn't this just some kind of thing that was made up and it was passed along verbally for a long time, and then as people want to manipulate others, they wrote it down in such a way to give themselves more power. That wouldn't fly in my world of trying to figure things out. And so as I looked at it, I started finding in the research that any of you can do, that how the Bible was really originally put together it wasn't a bunch of people trying to decide, well, hey, let's see, what can we put in the Bible? But rather, uh, it came about because there were a lot of teachings and writings from early at the turn of the first century uh, that were being passed on. And then other people started coming in, and they were trying to manipulate people. So um, many leaders... In, in what was at that time called the church, uh, head Christians, they, they started going, okay, we need to help people know and understand, discern what is truly uh, what we would consider today the Bible, what is valid from God. And so in about 330 A.D., Constantine ordered um, some Bibles to be copied and bent or bound together, and uh, that is kind of where our big fancy term the canon comes from canon is really just a it's not some big artillery that the uh, military uses but rather it is uh, back in those days the the word canon was used as as a means for standard or iron rod a measure uh, to hold up to a criteria so the criteria for the canon in what these guys put together as they evaluated some of the key criteria for what books to include what letters to include, was that they must have apostolic authority. All that means is that the key leaders that Jesus Christ put in charge of things, as he came and he left his message for them to pass on, uh, it had to have their authority. Uh, it had to be widely accepted by the body of Christ at the time. In other words, somebody couldn't just come along and write up a new document, throw it out there, 
and say, hey, look, here's, here's the new authority. Uh, that just didn't fly because anybody can do that without any true authority or validity. Had to be constant with the doctrine and teaching. In other words, there, uh, you couldn't have somebody come along and where all the other teachings say, do not murder. You couldn't have somebody come along and, and write in a little letter saying, oh, no, no, it's okay to murder. And if it had that kind of contradictions, uh, that just wasn't going to fly. It could not fit in the criteria of the canon. And uh, did uh, the last one was, did the book bear witness to high spiritual values reflecting the work of God? And uh, there again, th- there was a lot of looking at all the other teachings that had been passed on. And, and I, I just want to say that we'll, we'll see some of this a little bit later, but there were a lot of things, uh, a lot of these writings and letters that they were, they still had access to these, the original writings, some of them, uh, for quite a while. So they weren't just kind of going off of their, their own opinions. Um, they, they took this very, very seriously. And, uh, another part of that kind of fits in with that is, okay, how did, how did those people who were writing it and, and continuing to copy it, you know, you, you all know of the phone game. Well, we play that today as a fun game. You know, you tell one person, whisper a message to them, and they pass it on, and they whisper it to the next. And, and by the end, you have something that doesn't sound anywhere near the original message. But these people, they took, took it very seriously, especially like the, the Jews, the original Hebrews. Wow, when they considered handling God's word, they really believed that if they mishandled it, they would die. That is how serious they took this. And they, they seriously believed that they had to pass on the accurate information for the next generation. So when these scribes, the people who wrote it down, of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, uh, when they were writing it down, they had to uh, take serious pains. They would count the number of letters from of the entire document that they were uh, striving, writing out. They would count from the beginning to the middle and from the end to the middle. And if those didn't measure up exactly, then it was not accurate. If they made the slightest little mistake in their writing, they considered it so valuable, so holy uh, to themselves that if there was the slightest mistake, they would instantly get rid of it and it could not be accessed by anyone. Uh, so this whole thing of the phone game uh, did not fly with them. They they would have never considered it as an option. Yeah. You might have heard me talk a few months ago on different aspects of the canon, and I can assure you that the process of canonization was not cherry-picking at all. These people were very, very concerned with accuracy, and they were willing to pick books that they definitely had trouble with as far as their personal ideas. They basically chose only what met the strictest criteria. They weren't just going around putting whatever they wanted up there, as Dan Brown might have us think today, (laughs) in his fiction, of course, which oftentimes goes as actual evidence for the other side. Talking about evidence, let's talk about the textual evidence for the Bible. What about the textual reliability of the Bible? 
Well, you know, Nate, um, there is a lot of textual evidence. You, you can, those people who study the textuality of, of things um, and, and all these ancient manuscripts and stuff, they take it very seriously and they apply a lot of scientific methodology to this to determine what is valid and what is not. And to me, one of the most striking evidences in this area is something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, one of the things we have to evaluate is how accurately has what was written and said 2,000 years ago been passed on to us today? And, you know, we can have opinions, we can argue things all we want, but I like verifiable evidence. And so what, we've, what we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls, these are a bunch of... Um, strolls written on, on parchment and leather, but there's also a lot that are made in clay. And there's, there's many things that are, are, are just for civil function and things such as that. But within those, there are a lot of scriptural scrolls. They were found by a Bedouin shepherd in the Holy Lands uh, around Israel, um, primarily in the 50s, I think the first one was found in 48. I think the last one was found actually in the late 50s. I don't remember exactly. But uh, they then kind of, oh, they were passed around, held in secrecy, much of it. There were a few things that were coming out. But they weren't sure how to handle a lot of this. And finally it started coming out, getting translated and documented well and preserved. And these date back to 100 B.C. to 150 B.C., okay? So this is before the time of Jesus Christ. That is of major significance. Another part of that is the Dead Sea Scrolls contain every book of what we today call the Old Testament, uh, except for one, which is the book of Esther. So that means we can look at what we have today, and we can go back to... 100 or 150 BC, and we can compare how well have things been passed on. And I actually got an opportunity to see one of these. It was called the Copper Scroll. It is one of the most predominant scrolls of the entire find. Uh, back in, ooh, I think it was the early 60s, a man made some copies of it, basically photo copies of it, uh, using some te the technology that they had at that time because they wanted to be able to put this into storage so it wouldn't decompose, but they could still analyze what was on it. There are four of those made, and all four of those, to my knowledge, are in existence today. One of those actually traveled through Grand Junction about three years ago, Grand Junction, Colorado, which is where I live. So I got to go see this. When I was there, there was a woman from Israel who was a Jew, and she has her scripture. And so she was asked to check it out. So she took her Hebrew Bible, and she started reading it. And she read through the entire book of Isaiah. And it is what she has in her Hebrew Bible today. Now, let me just emphasize that. That is... 2,100 years separate from 
that part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Copper Scroll, to today, and it was accurate. That is significant. We have problems coming up with any other documents that have that much validity. Now, some other things with that, some, some just a comparison here. Take Isaiah 53. Uh, if you compare that to the Masoretic Scroll, uh, which comes from a bit later, but many of the current Bibles are translated from that. In Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters that are different. Okay, this is, this is a book that is, oh, I don't know, probably 30 pages long in small print. There's only 17 letters different. Ten of those are spelling. Four of those are the presence of a conjunction. And three are the Hebrew word for light in verse 11 that doesn't change any sense of the passage. As we can see from that, the textual evidence shows how accurate this is. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango on KDUR.org online. And I'm interviewing Kyle Kostreva, who is a dear friend and who leads our ministry in Grand Junction. And he went to college here back in the 80s. I've known him for many years, and he is someone that I respect incredibly, and I'm so thankful that he gets to be in the studio with me today sharing about something that he loves. We're talking about the reliability of the Bible. So, Kyle, on that topic, how do we know that what we have matches the originals? That's very interesting. As, as we've been talking, there's the textual evidence there. We, we have archaeological evidence. That is one of the things that is a great love of mine. I've been able to look at some archaeological uh, findings, and I've researched a lot. I follow that closely. And it's very interesting that uh, as archaeology discovers things, um, they are not able to disprove anything in the Bible. In fact, the more they find, the more it validates the things in the Bible. In fact, I have spoken with people who have been on archaeological digs over in the Middle East in the Holy Lands and uh, they actually use the Bible to find different locations. Uh, they, these people are not in any way Christians or religious but they know that if they're trying to find something that has to do with any part of the Bible era that uh, they can find these, use the Bible to triangulate and just find uh, landmarks nearby and, and find what they're looking for. So that, that's one aspect of it. Another part of it, like we were just talking a few minutes ago with the textual evidence, when we look at it compared to other ancient books, things that we just accept as being true and valid, uh, there's things like uh, the, the Peloponnesian War, the Gaelic Wars, um, kind of history, history of Rome, Homer's Iliad, and, and so we accept those things. Well, let's look at it in, this, uh, in the same kind of comparison there. With the New Testament, there are thousands of manuscripts. With these others, there are not thousands of manuscripts. So what do we have to compare with? In the New Testament, the manuscripts of the book in the Bible, there are 8,000 in Latin, 5,000 in Greek, 1,000 in other languages, including uh, Coptic, which is in Egypt, and so let's compare these. Let's look at them. Let's take Homer's Iliad. Okay, so you have thousands of manuscripts uh, from the New Testament. Homer's Iliad 
has very few. And uh, let's look at the distance between the time of their writing and the most recent manuscript that we have. With Homer's Iliad, there's a thousand years apart from when it, it was originally written to our oldest document of that. And yet we accept Homer's Iliad as being legitimate and factual. So if we are going to be consistent, we have to look at the New Testament writings. And as I was kind of weighing this evidence out in uh, my early days, I, I had to consider this and go, okay, well, if there's this much evidence, I accept these other historical documents and the historical figures that have far less evidence for them, what am I going to do with this? Um, so, for instance, we have a manuscript or a portion, actually, uh, to be more precise, of the book of John from the New Testament. It is dated to roughly 130 A.D. It was found in Egypt. Now, John was written around 90 A.D. in Ephesus. And so we have, what, 40 years, 30 to 40 years between its writing and the most recent uh, portion or the oldest portion that we have of that. Just 30 years difference, 30 to 40 years. And to amplify that a little bit more, there was just 60 years difference between the events and the writing by John, and he was an eyewitness of these events. So you have roughly 100 years between the event and our oldest portion, and that just blows Homer's Iliad out of the water for the evidence of its authenticity by scholars' evaluation. We actually have a history prof here at Fort Lewis College who I've heard going through these very statistics. And I told him about it, and I just said, hey, I am so thankful that you're willing to discuss the reliability of the Bible. And he said, hey, I have to be honest with the facts. He said I couldn't do otherwise. It would be a historical injustice. It wouldn't be a correct way to handle the facts. Well, wrapping up here, very quickly, why don't you tell me about the supposed variations? People like Bart Ehrman try to come out and say, well, among those manuscripts, we have lots of variations. Is this something we should worry about? Yeah, from his claim, there are roughly 400,000 estimated variations. Most scholars that I've read actually hold that to more like 200, but it really 200,000. That, that really doesn't matter. Let's go 200 to 400,000 variations. Um, well, let's evaluate. Let's look at what those variations or errors between these manuscripts is. Does it illegitimize the Bible? Well, all the variations are very inconsequential. Uh, most are grammatical variations due to translation of language. Uh, in other words, for example, in the Greek, the order of the words doesn't matter quite as much structurally in a sentence as it does in English. Uh, so I could say David punched Jessica or Jessica punched David. Well, in English, there is a very different thing. Um, very different meaning in that, but the structure in the Greek grammar of that time, it was there were things built into the words and the grammar that it didn't really matter in which order those appeared. So that really doesn't matter as we look at those supposed variations in the Greek language or in the Hebrew that still is valid. Um, as we saw in Isaiah 53, uh, there, there were spelling changes in the words. Those are considered variations. 
These numbers are very misleading. For instance, the counting of variations, if one word is misspelled in 2,000 manuscripts, that's 2,000 variations. So let's say that uh, Mr. Scribe Joe was writing Isaiah 53, and he just had a slight problem of trying to spell two with uh, two O's instead of one O, if we were dealing with English. And he just made that spelling error. And as he went from one document to the next, copying the same thing over and over, he made that error 2,000 times. Well, that's 2,000 variations. I don't quite think that makes a big um, problem with this. Uh, so the, these kind of things are, are very evident. There are no variations that I have had er, anyone ever be able to show me that has any real impact on the message of the Bible or being able to derive what it is saying. Yeah, and what's important to remember with these so-called variations is there are so many thousands of copies of the documents themselves that we quickly see the variations when they do occur. No one believes or holds that every single copy that's ever been made of all the scriptures is absolutely correct. There are definitely copies that have errors in them. We're not saying that there is no copy containing an error. What's wonderful is God allowed there to be so many copies of these manuscripts that when there were errors, we could find them quickly so that we would not lose the true wording or the true meaning of his word. Well, we have to wrap up the show. It's come to the end. Just really briefly, Kyle, what about translations? I hear all the time students saying, well, it's been translated so many times. How can we trust it? What would you tell them? Well, I would tell them, look at the evidence for how, uh, how, how did we get this? Um, how accurate is it? How far can we take it to the beginning? And look at these different variations, um, the different translations. Is there really that much difference between them? You know, one of the biggest things to me, as I really evaluated this, after I looked at the empirical evidence, the evidence I could research and verify, I had to ask myself this question, and that was, the Bible claims that God is all-powerful, and if this God really is God, then he has the ability to communicate the things that he wants to to us. He also has the ability to keep those things accurate. If he cannot or he does not, then he is either not all-powerful or he is not good. So if he is good and all-powerful, he is able to maintain that through all these, and the empirical evidence verifies that he has done so. Absolutely. And all that leads to the greatest news that this world has ever known. Outside of Christ, expressed in his word, the Bible, there's no hope. We would all be in that same place that Kyle described at the beginning of the show, hopeless realizing that everything around us is nothing but failure, realizing that we have no ultimate hope for anything more than the failures that we see in this life. But then Jesus enters this scene, and he says that God loves us individually, and that he himself became a human being, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, that he lived among us, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, so that anyone who would put their faith and trust in him could be forgiven, could be adopted into his family, could experience a life of purpose here on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. 
It's the greatest message that's ever been told. It's what rescued Kyle from where he was at as a freshman here at Fort Lewis College. And it's what we find written in the Bible, which Kyle just described. If you're in a similar place today, I would invite you to take that step and to say, Jesus, I need you. I believe you are who you say you are and that you can offer what you promise me. Please come into my life and forgive my sins. Please be my Savior and Lord. I put my faith and my trust in you. The Bible says if you take that step, sincerely putting your faith and trust in him for salvation, you will be adopted into his family, given a purpose in this life and an eternity with him in heaven. If you haven't ever taken that step before, I pray that you'll take that this morning. I would also like to invite you to a local church this morning. New Hope meets at the Storyteller Durango 9 Theater at 9.30 a.m. I would encourage you to visit New Hope. They're a great place where you can grow in your faith and you'll find people that will encourage you there. Well, I'm so glad that you listened. It's been a great show. I can't wait to be back on the air next week. Until then, go ahead and check out GodSolutionShow.com for some of our previous shows and definitely leave a comment and let me know what you think. And maybe if you have a question, give me that question and I'd love to address it here on the air. Ultimately, though, I'm so thankful that you're listening and I pray that you'll investigate the Bible that Kyle talked about today, that you'll pick it up and read it. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Have a great Sunday. Thanks so much, Nate.